Welcome back to the flip side, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Galen Clavio here. Brian Moritz also here as well as we get set for our pre pre Thanksgiving pod. Yes. I feel like we need to center our pod from this point forward around the second tier of holidays, which I think we discussed maybe sometime back in season one. Right. Where, you know, like the first tier holidays are obviously Christmas and the 4th of July and well, and, now that I think about it, maybe Thanksgiving is a first tier holiday. That, oh, Thanksgiving's absolutely a first tier holiday. I would go Thanksgiving, Christmas. I would go Easter on that one and Fourth of July. So uh, it's four first tier holidays? I think so. I, hmm. East, Easter above Memorial Day? Oh, easily. Easily. Really? Above, I would absolutely say that. Yes, absolutely. I can tell one of us is not from Indiana. Um, but <laughs> And one of us did not grow up Catholic, so there you go. <laughs> these, are, these are both accurate points. Which is probably a good distinction that neither one is a first, first-tier holiday. Uh, see, well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, mean, I can yeah, see I, that. I, yeah, I, see I that, mean, yeah. I, I was thinking about Thanksgiving, though. It's like, I feel like if there's a, if there's a holiday that I had to miss – and not feel bad about it, it would probably be Thanksgiving. Like really? if I had to be overseas, because I've done this before, I had to be overseas. I was in over, I was, I was in New Zealand during Thanksgiving. Oh, I don't know, back in 2010 or something like that. And I really didn't feel like I missed it very much. Uh, huh. I didn't feel like I had done a disservice to anything. Um, I mean, cause there's no like, there's no real overt patriotism. There's no real overt anything like, you know, you know, it's supposed to be like a family gets together, but family also gets together, you know, around the other holidays, whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah right? or, or they get together. I mean, I don't know. I, it's, it's important, but it's like, I feel like of, of the major holidays, it might be the one where you could, if you wanted to not participate and be perfectly fine with everything. Well, in that regard, I think you're right. And mainly because it comes with Christmas so close behind it that you're gonna that it, because it's kind of the kickoff to the holiday season. It's not like you miss Thanksgiving for whatever reason, and then there's like a six month family or holiday oasis. You've got the big you got the big one. You got number one on everyone's list coming right after it. So I so I I, I do think that and I've traveled for, during Thanksgiving before back when I was a basketball writer, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, I was lucky. I was able to actually be with some family. Uh, for Thanksgiving, but it, you know, it felt weird to me, but like, see, for me, I would say like, I think it's a first year holiday, but I think 4th of July could very much fit into that. Um, I could miss it or not do much of anything for it. And it wouldn't really be a big deal for me. So it just, to me, it seems though, like, I don't know, you, maybe you're right. It's cause I was going to say, it seems like the 4th of July festivities engulf everything on that day. And I guess you could say the same thing about Thanksgiving, think- but like, Thanksgiving happens so early, like almost everybody's done with their meal by like three o'clock. Like, you know, there, there's no right. like, oh, this extends throughout the entire day sort of thing. It's a lot of times it's like, oh, we've eaten, we've done all of our stuff. And now it's like four in the afternoon and everybody's either asleep or smells bad. And so it's time to leave the house and drive back home so that we can get ready to go out shopping at three in the morning. I, it, 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 that, that is the weird thing about Thanksgiving when you think about it is that there's no like accordant other celebration like okay take for me i uh, if i put easter on the top tier you've got church and then you've got easter dinner or breakfast and you've got church around it you know basically the whole reason for the holiday is church christmas you've got church you got presents you got family you got all the holiday festivities that kind of go around with it and thanksgiving yeah thanksgiving's just about the food which is a good thing but you know yeah there's not that other thing to do and i always thought that 
Um, I always thought that a pizza place in, in whatever town you're living in could do really, really well by opening from like 7 to 11 on Thanksgiving night. Because like you said, you're done eating. You don't want to pick at the leftovers because you had your fill of all that stuff. You don't want to cook anything because your kitchen's a disaster or you've been traveling and you're tired. You just need, you know, I think a pizza place would do really, really well with a right. Thanksgiving night special. And you figure, I was thinking about this, like, what do you, like, other than turkey and and Thanksgiving dinner, even though it's more like Thanksgiving supper, the way that it normally goes, what is the holiday known for? It's basically just known for a parade that most people don't watch mm-hmm. and football, which only, like, I would say maybe 40% of Americans watch the, the NFL games. Right. So if you're not a football fan and you're not a parade fan, what else, what are you doing exactly on Thanksgiving other than just catching up with people that you haven't thought enough to keep up with throughout the rest of the year? That's a, I, mean, I mean, that's about it really. I mean, it's really about the meal. Oh. I mean, it's really is a meal thing. So I think next week we, we, we had kind of talked about this earlier when we were trying to figure out what to talk about tonight. I think t- next week can be our full-fledged Thanksgiving preview. Tie it into a food episode again because those are always really popular. And I'm sure you have strong thoughts on what, what belongs to Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, do I ever? <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. I love it. I love it. So um, I am, by the way, not broadcasting from the British Virgin Islands, as rumored it would be last week. Um, I- I'm, I'm, I assume you're on the plane to the BVI I, at this point. Like this is—it's weird. I'm looking at the interior; it looks suspiciously like a laundry room. But my thought is perhaps Brian got his house put on a 747 cargo conversion so that it's as normalized as possible. I'm doing that Singapore that that Singapore Air ads that's been on Hulu all week with like Jennifer Aniston and like the, the like pod of luxury. I've actually made my laundry room a a, a Qantas Air pot of luxury to take me to the British Virgin Islands. So if, um, now, if Jennifer Aniston pops out from behind that corner, I'm going to be mightily <laughs> impressed, sir. You and me both. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and tip my glass to you already. Uh, on that. Spe- speaking speaking of uh, of tipping glasses, what is in yours tonight? So I have something that is, uh, I think, a new entry uh, okay. for the for the pod for for me. This is the Kona. Brewing Company's Longboard Lager. Oh, that's very good. I've had that before. Yeah, it's a nice, easy-drinking beer, and mm-hmm. it is always on sale here. It's it's really? kind of remarkable. It huh. is always on sale. I have had uh, it whenever, I, and I, it's a leftover from tailgating this past weekend, and I have been enjoying a bottle here and a bottle there for the last couple of days. Excellent. So I have a, a very unique beer, unique flavor beer. It's actually, the, the actual beer is just, feels very normal but this is from new belgium and ben and jerry's so it's a combination <laughs> that they do it is chocolate two, two terribly overrated companies anyway, sorry go ahead <laughs> it is wow chocolate chip cookie dough ale hmm and this was the this is the beer that you walk by in the on the end cap at wegmans and see chocolate chip cookie dough ale well you 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 buy first and ask questions later now it turns out for one thing this is part of a uh, Protect Our Winters, which is a uh, anti-climate change uh, advocacy group. So it's one of those, like, I think they get a little bit of money from from the sale of the beer every year, and it's a, and, and it's a thing that they do. And it's funny, because I, 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 when we first got this, I, I was hesitant, mainly because 
something like chocolate chip cookie dough ale is one of those things that sounds really great. And then you get it and you drink half of one and it's like, okay, this is interesting. And then you're stuck with five beers that you're never going to drink. It turns out, I, I, I this is the third of the six that I've had. I'm still waiting to really taste a lot of the chocolate chip cookie dough. Um, but what's left is just a really solid brown ale. So it's hmm. it's quite good, quite um, a nice kind of mid to, mid-autumn type beer. Um, a little bit of the, uh, of the cookie dough flavor, flavor to it, but not, it's not, I I was worried that it would be very like a, like one of those kind of sickly sweet beers and it's not, it's very much a brown ale with just like some, a little bit of hints on it. So I'd recommend this. So they got you with subterfuge is what you're saying. They always get me with subterfuge. Yes. (laughs) And I like, and I like both new Belgium and Ben and Jerry's just fine. Thank you very much. I, hey, everybody's entitled to their own opinions. I just, I think, I feel like there's a couple of, they're not micro brews because they're way too big. Mm-hmm. That that they're, I, I understand that they were to some degree kind of transitional between the the mega brewery era and the era that we're in now. Mm-hmm. But but I feel like New Belgium and Sierra Nevada. And 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 really, Sam Adams too. I think to some degree, their beers from a flavor profile just don't hold up to the stuff that they're competing with now. Okay. But they're good. They're good gateway drugs. Right. And and that's not to say that they don't make some good beers. Like Sierra Nevada, my my buddy was over this weekend, and he brought some. Uh, and I forget what type of Sierra Nevada it was now, but it was really really good. It was a really like really really solid. Um, pale ale that I did not realize they made and was frankly surprised when I saw the name that was on the label. And, you know, and Sam Adams has had some decent ones. I've had some decent New Belgium. It's just that I feel like a lot of their traditional offerings tend to be a little shy on, on they, they seem muted now from a flavor perspective. That's fair. And New Belgium just in the past couple months, just early summers when they finally started distributing up in uh, Western New York here. So, um, you know, the ability to get fat tire, um, at, at the grocery store is just wonderful. Um, right. but, and, uh, they had a watermelon flavored summer ale, which was actually quite good. Very, very surprisingly good. And fat tires just, I, I, I find them to be, you know, maybe I get, maybe I can, I can see your point in that they're a little overhyped from what they are. Maybe we, I felt that here because that was the, you can't get it here and now you can get it here. But fat tire is just one of those beers. That's always going to be good. Like it's like, like the, uh, Sierra Nevada torpedo, you know, uh, their, their standard IPA. If you're going to get it, you know, is it the most awesome beer in the world or like most daring? No, but it's a so- always going to be a solid, good beer to drink, which is, you know, I, for me, I'll, I'll always take that. So. That's fine. That's cool. Yeah. It's a, I, I just, it's interesting because it's like, uh, I, I just thought I'd bring it up. Uh, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not trying to, to, you know, slaughter all of your sacred cows during this podcast. <laughs> I, I would hate, I know I tried to take down Thanksgiving and here I am trying to take down New Belgium next. And I mean, then ben it's, and, uh, and, and Ben and Jerry's. Well, Ben and Jerry's, I do think is a little overrated. I, I mean, and, and I say that as someone who no longer eats ice cream okay. regularly. I, I have to, you know, I have like, I, I eat a very weird version of ice cream because of, of the milk allergy that I have. But, oh, okay. uh, but, but, um, I, I always felt the flavor of Ben and Jerry's was uh, somewhat overstated by the marketing, uh, yes. it, you know, and, and so I don't know. I've, I'm, I am, uh, you know, us, 
us po- folks in flyover country, we're kind of suspicious of all that fancy marketing from the coast. From uh, uh, the liber- us liberal elites on the east. That's coast right. Here. Yes. <laughs> uh, so um, we should probably address the elephant in the room. We uh, recorded our previous podcast the night before the apocalypse, and now the apocalypse is upon us. Um, so what's been, so what's been, you were, you are, and, it, and, and it's interesting, I think we have interesting perspectives, you know, both teaching at, at, at university, at public universities, you are in not only flyover land, but you're in like one of the traditional red states, not in one of those newfangled red states that went all trendy, <laughs> um, but like one of the new, but one of the, uh, one of the, you were a red state before it was cool. Um, LBJ, LBJ and Obama, that's the only Democrats <laughs> Indiana votes for, so. And uh, and for all intents and purposes, I mean, I think people are often surprised to hear this, but the part of New York State that I live in is, for all intents and purposes, a red state. I mean, right. New York is a very much a the the kind of classic red state, except for the urban areas of Buffalo, Rochester, to to an extent, Syracuse, and of course, New York City just dominates it. Um, so what is much the, much like Illinois? Is Illinois that the same? Okay, I fit, I would I would have assumed that. Um, so what's so what has the the week been like um, in Bloomington and and on campus and you know kind of what was your kind of general reaction as someone who is less partisan than I am but no less apolitical than I am? So what was your kind of reaction to everything well, last uh, week? I will say first of all, while you're correct that Indiana is a is, is a very traditional red state, um, Bloomington is very much uh, a dot of blue right. within that of uh, hyper blue. Like I mean, most of the I think all but one of the city government positions did not have a Republican running. Okay, uh, that's that's the level of of blue now. But but it's one of those weird things where you had that, but then Jill Stein wasn't on the ballot. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> Like I was trying to explain this to a friend of mine from Miami, and uh, you know, because I she like was telling me who was on the presidential ballot there, and I was like, well, we only had three names. We had we had uh, Clinton, we had Trump, and we had Gary Johnson. And she's like, well, why didn't you have Jill Stein? And I'm like, because even though this is very much a a very liberal town, it's it's a very liberal kind of county, or at least the, well, the city part of the county is. Uh, there's something about the Green Party that wouldn't fly in in this part of Middle America. Like the the the, the connections just don't quite get made the same way as they would potentially on the coast. But anyway, um, the the town's been pretty pretty amped up in a in a, uh, a negative way. I would say from the standpoint that there's a lot of people who are upset. There've been some you know some some pretty decent sized protest marches downtown. Uh, there's been a couple of acts of of vandalism and and uh, you know people have been getting uh, up in arms about that, uh, and I, I'll tackle that stuff in a second. I, I guess first of all, from the from the perspective of the of the election itself, as you probably noted if you listened last week, and obviously you listened, Brian, because you were on the podcast with me. This this result was not that much of a surprise to me, right? Uh, you know, I, I think that you know my my initial electoral projection, uh, I had. What something like I think it was about a twenty electoral vote or thirty electoral vote uh, difference. Where I, I did have Hillary Clinton winning, but uh, you know I was breaking down possibilities of ties yep. and things like that, and so I wasn't shocked about it. 
And, you know, I, I think it's been interesting watching what's happened in the last seven days in terms of the way that the media have reacted, in terms of the way that the people have reacted, and just in terms of, I guess, the lessons that are being learned or aren't being learned from what occurred. And I, and I still think it's too early for there to be a lot of lessons to be learned, mm-hmm. but people are sure acting like they've got enough to to state the lessons that, that need to have been learned out of this. And I don't know, it's, it's kind of a head scratching thing to me. I mean, I'm still kind of sitting back and, and taking the whole thing in. Um, I do think that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack in this process. And I do think that, you know, the, the re the public reactions that people are having, um, I guess on one hand, I'm not surprised by them. And on the other hand, I'm surprised that they are gaining as much steam as they've gained. Okay. Uh, this is, it's kind of, it's kind of unprecedented in modern American politics for this kind of a sustained reaction to have taken place. And, you know, I, I, I do wonder at what, like, where's that coming from? You know, it's, I mean, I, I would say there's been prior elections where there's been a lot of, of anger uh, at the outcome, but this is the first time we've really seen it manifest in like people on the streets and, uh, you know, and, and I don't know if it's a social media thing or if it's some other phenomenon in concert with that, but it is interesting to kind of watch it develop and, and, you know, mutate over time. Yeah. When I saw the protests that were coming up starting at believe it would have been Wednesday night because Tuesday night was the shock and on night. So Wednesday night was the first night of the protests. And I remember seeing it Thursday morning and I remember actually thinking, like, this is the kind of thing you see in foreign countries after an election. This is not the type of thing you see here. Uh, and it was stunning. And, like, look, um, as listeners of the podcast would know, um, who were my allegiance lies, I was not so much surpri- – I don't think I was surprised that, that at the result. I don't think that um, anybody who says they were truly surprised was really paying attention you know, throughout the campaign or throughout or throughout, you know, what's to what's going on. You know, I've posted on on my Facebook like I drive past four to five Confederate flags every day on the way to work. So, no, I'm not surprised that this was a close race. I'm not surprised that Trump won or, or was in a position to win or win. I will tell you, I mean, Tuesday night was a r- bad, bad night. It was a rough night for us. Um, and it was more just the. I think the shock, more not surprised that he's winning, but kind of like the shock that is settling in that this was really happening, that 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 um, that Trump was winning, and I think I was thinking about it. Um, for me, it was kind of you know early in the you know, it was funny because it was such a it was a roller coaster night for us in our house because we live obviously we live near Rochester, and so we took our daughter who just turned six, we took her to Mount Hope Cemetery where Susan B. Anthony is buried. And there was a all day, I'm sure you saw on, it was all over the web and all over cable news. There was a line of people who would, who would, we filtered through the, through the cemetery and up people were putting their, her, her tombstone was completely covered with I, with I voted stickers and people were leaving stuff. And my daughter left a note and it felt really, it felt so optimistic in that time. It felt so hopeful and all the best, it sounds so corny to say, but it felt really like so positive and so good. And this is going to be such a good night. And we were doing this and then we come back. And then I remember as they weren't calling Virginia and as the Florida results were coming in, it was about like eight, nine, about eight, nine, right about eight thirty nine o'clock. And this is just the time that 
when the times that ticker started to to fluctuate a little more, I think that's when it really started to sink in for me that of how it was going to go. And that when you start looking at too hard at like, well, there's still 135, you know, still X amount left in Broward County and you're going by county. It's like, okay, this is not good. This is not going well. Um, and, and it was, it was it, like, I re I was surprised at how strongly I emotionally reacted to that night. Um, and it was, and, you know, I sat down, I wrote a letter to my daughter that got picked up and circulated around. Um, and you know, it was one of the things that kind of helped me just kind of process what was happening in in what I hope was a healthy and realistic sort of way. And, and, and going through and going through the next and going through this week, I, I do have to say having to teach the next morning. I think helped speed my recovery, for lack of better words, or help me process it. Because I had to, very quickly, by 10.15 the next morning, I had to be the adult in a room full of 19, 20-year-olds, a lot of whom who were really crushed by this. Or, you know, I have Hispanic students, I have students of color in class, I have uh, students who parents whose parents are immigrants, and, you know, pe- LGBT students, you know, people who are genuinely very much afraid, not white liberal afraid, but very much, you know, feeling, um, feeling in a, feeling unsafe and feeling scared. And, and, and so that helped, but I, but you know, it, it, it's been, it's been a week. It's been interesting to see the, uh, the, the, how, how the, the blame the blank, uh, coalition has kind of come together. There was first a blaming Nate Silver, which is one of the topics we can talk about tonight. There's the uh, the blaming the media, um, which is still going on um, and still going on now that um, uh, with uh, Steve Bannon being a, uh, appointed to chief of I don't know chief of being in Trump's one ear while Rince Priebus is in the other ear. Um, special advisor is that going to be his title? Yeah, it's, it's like chief strategist, chief strategist, or, so, yeah. or something like that. And I don't know. It, it is. It's. It's. I feel like it is very much too early to to understand on this. I've been really trying to reject easy, simple narratives like it's clearly racism, or it's clearly economic anxiety, or it's clearly a reaction to the elites. Um, cause I think it can be all those things and it's a lot of things. And, it, and, and I also come back to this weird, to this notion that every time I get really, you know, my, my wife read this the night after and my wife is politically my, as polit- we're on the same side. We're, we're not like one of those, you know, couples that fight about politics. We're, on, we're, we're very much on the same side. And she, re- and, and I think, and she read something that helped her kind of settle with it. And it's one of those things where whenever you hear about the, the about the, the results and, Clinton won the popular vote, and it's going to be a significant, a rather significant win. Like the, I believe it's on pace to be, if not already, the largest popular win by someone who lost the electoral college. Like upwards of a two percent win in the popular vote once everything's being counted. And so that's kind of like, you know, you know, yeah, in, in, in this really weird way, like. Like Trump won, but more people are against him than for him. I don't know. It's one of those things where, like, sometimes you try to find ways. I, I find myself maybe trying to find ways to go forward and to process this in a way that's not, you know, doesn't give in to the, um, the, the, you know, the doom and gloom. But it is, it, 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 it is, um, um, yeah, it's been a week. Kind of stagger, staggered out to a, to a close there. It's been a week. I will say I am very quickly losing patience with 
sports writers, I haven't seen this too much in sports writers, but entertainment writers, uh, TV writers, people writing about pop culture who are spending a lot of last week and even early this week talking about, you know, you know, at a time when, you know, you don't want to write about this, you know, you know, kind of writing about the, the, you know, I don't really want to write about this TV show because of what's going on in the world, but I feel like I'm, I should go on like, come on, write about, write about your TV. You know, that's the, oh, it's I'm, been a, it's I'm been losing a common thread, even in yeah. the podcast. I mean, today okay. I was listening to a podcast today about, it was a video game podcast from the ringer and they basically started the podcast by like, well, you know, you know, we're we're they, they presented it more like, well, here's here's something to escape all the nasty things that are going on around us, and it's like, I mean, it it is, it it, it really has jumped out of its uh, out of its pen, so to speak, and it's like there's a certain movement among a lot of the uh, the creative class or the 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 the, cre- the creation class, maybe would be a better way of putting it, that it it has to dominate their thought process or else they're going to, I guess, be thought of as not having been personally devastated by yeah, Trump winning. Yeah. And, 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 you know, certainly there's, there's always room for, if you want to discuss it and feel like you have something, either a substance to say, or kind of like, you know, in a way like, you know, substantive reporting or kind of like we're doing, like just kind of unpacking where we are. I think that's fine. But you know, it's that, it's that, um, almost showiness of it that's very off-putting to me that this very much um calling attention to the fact that i know this is a horrible deal but still must we on in our in our creative world and it's like you're you're allowed to you're allowed to watch college basketball you know you you know i you know multiple things can be true one thing that mike wilbon said that has actually stuck with me in a very good way is that more than one thing can be true you can be absolutely devastated by these results angry and fueled to social change and want to watch Supergirl and all those things can peacefully coexist within the same world. And, um, I don't know, I'm getting, you know, and and it is funny. I I noticed one thing you posted on Facebook today about the, uh, the, one of the real stories in the election is the bloodbath that the Democrats took at the state level. I mean, just a shat and it's awful from a democratic point of view. And, and, and one of the things I thought of with, with, with why that, that's happening and, and a problem that is, is you are seeing this furious back and forth among my, uh, among, you know, woke writers and liberal writers and democratic side writers about the whole safety pin thing. And, and like, like, okay, I wear a safety pin. My wife wears a safety pin. Uh, we are not changing the world and, and, and we are not changing the world by doing this. It is a one small outward sign of other things we are doing. It's supportive, blah, blah, blah. It's a safety pin. But can you imagine on the Republican side, if they had lost, they wouldn't, there would not be this great hand wringing about whether safety pin is good or not. They'd all be wearing the safety pin and being defiant about it. And I feel like there's a weird lesson in that about American, about American politics and the difference between the parties. Um, I don't know. Probably reading too much into it, but no, I don't think you are. I think I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, look, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about the election and the outcome of the election. Um, you know, I think I think you're right that Clinton's loss isn't down to any one factor. Paced magazine actually had a really interesting article today where the writer laid out like eight or nine things that. He, people needed to keep it in mind, and and one of the things that that I think it was a he did really well 
was lay out that it wasn't just down to the media, the news media, you know, causing problems or the pollsters being wrong, or it wasn't just racists or it wasn't like this. I mean, it was a, it was a whole combination of factors and, you know, and it's also, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that I've found most fascinating is that when you're talking about the analysis, the, the, the analysis of the election itself, whether it's, oh, how did we not see this huge wave of support for Trump or, or something like that? Like the, the fact of the matter is the reason that Trump won isn't because there was this huge wave of support for Trump. It's because Democrats who voted in the 2012 election and the 2008 election didn't show up. Right. And, and you know, but, but that's that's a hard thing for people to get their heads wrapped around because like, what do you like? How do you, you, there's no way that you can look at that and not blame the candidate. Right. Because, yeah. And that, and that's, that seems to be the overarching theme of a lot of the, the, the stuff that I've seen from, from Democrats and from progressives online, unless they're Bernie supporters. Like if they were, if they were strident Bernie supporters, they have no problem saying Hillary Clinton couldn't bring the vote out. But if, if they were Hillary supporters, they seem to be looking for almost any other excuse or any other reason why other than, well, six and a half million voters or whatever it was didn't show up. Right. Um, now, that, all that said, um, that's different from what you were talking about, the, the safety pin issue, which, frankly, I didn't even realize was a thing until you posted something on your Facebook. I knew the safety pin thing was the case. I was not aware that there was this whole, like, left-wing, internecine con- conflict oh, yeah. over – whether I had no clue, um, it to me, if there's a big take-home point from the election, it's that, and I, and I think that that piece that that f- I think it was five thirty-eight uh, had that I posted that that showed the defenestration of the Democrats at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, that that you know, there's there's a real intellectual disconnect between what the the, the the leading voices in the Democratic Party are saying and believe is important, and what seems to be resonating with voters. And mm-hmm. the safety pin thing's a good example of this. Like I don't, I mean, there's no, I mean, whether whether it's whether that's an appropriate or important or necessary thing or not, the fact of the matter is that's a very trivial sort of thing to be arguing about. Right. When you're looking around and you're saying, look, we think we have the best ideas by far. Like we, we are convinced that we know what's going on with society, that we know how to fix it. And we are doing a hideous job of actually convincing uh, people outside of urban areas uh, of, of that, of the truth of that argument. And that, to me, that's like, that's what you, there should be big arguments about right now. If I'm a Democrat, it's mm-hmm. like, why, why is our message not resonating Anywhere outside of the places where it's already so firmly ensconced that we don't face any potential electoral challenges, right. you know. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not. I, I don't know if I. I don't know. I. And I've, we've talked about this before. I don't really know what to classify myself as politically, but I, what I do classify myself politically as is is somebody who would prefer the country do things that help it it in the long run. I'd prefer that society help itself. I prefer that we do things that are, that are logical from an, uh, an, an economic perspective. Uh, I think there's multiple ways to get there, but regardless of which party is doing well and which party is doing poorly, it's bad for me 
as a relatively now a political person from a from a party affiliation standpoint, it's bad for me if only one party is is electing people to office, uh, you know, in majorities across the country, because right. that means then there's not a free flow of ideas. There's not there's not the sort of you know gridlock that will force compromise. What you end up with is just a bunch of bad ideas because you got a bunch of people going unopposed, and right. and so that's what concerns me out of all this. And what I I guess my hope. I didn't want Donald Trump to be elected president. I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I think that Donald Trump, uh, it might not be the worst, uh, you know, it might not be the worst thing in the world. He might not be that bad of a president. We don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he should be given the benefit of the doubt, but I also am not ready to say that it's automatically going to be the worst experience in the history of, of Western civilization. But, but that said, if, if there was a silver lining in Trump getting elected, my hope was that, that Democrats would take a look at why they lost and come up with some sober realizations about their, their message, their core beliefs, whether their core beliefs are actually things that are good or whether it's just things that they've talked with their, their political, you know, like family and, and that, that they just decided that that's what that is. And, and, you know, whatever the rest of the country thinks isn't important. I was hoping that there would be a a real investigation of that. And instead what I'm seeing is kind of the opposite. Mm -hmm. Like there, there's almost a, some like, you know, there's almost like a doubling down to some degree. It's not like, well, maybe we should be rethinking our beliefs. It's more, it's more like, no, we need to mobilize. And I don't know what, I, I don't think that that's the right mentality because it almost, it's almost like the Democrats are arguing like, like this is a war that needs to be waged right. and won now. And that, that to me seems like it's going to be counterproductive right. because it's almost leading to, again, to this us against them mentality, which led right. them there in the first place. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, the one positive I, I could see coming out of the uh, out of the selection result is I'm starting to feel and I might be in my bubble whatever but I'm starting to feel like there's a real movement like like this is almost a, an awakening of a lot of people to being like to being more active in productive ways like yes there are protests going on I don't think the protests are necessarily bad but I do feel like you know there there the, what I hope is that this leads to an increase in democratically minded people um, going down, work, running down ballot, uh, running for state houses, running for state legislators, running for state senates? We had in Rochester in our area. I don't know. Most a majority of the state assembly assembly races were unopposed, either both ways, Republican versus Republican versus Democrat. And I just don't think that that's not healthy because, like you said, you're not getting a full hearing of ideas. You're not getting, you know. We're not hearing new ideas. There's no uh, incentive then for incumbents to have new ideas if they're not going to be facing any any kind of re-election. There's no sense sense of of that of of change. And you know, I I I do think that there was you know we can we can wrap this up and get to our data conversation in a second. But I do think there was this always undercurrent. And not undercurrent because it won the election, but between Donald Trump and then Bernie Sanders on the Republican side, on the Democratic side, there was a a strong anger toward the status quo um, and to like the political establishment, and it manifested itself in different ways. You know, I've said this before, probably on this podcast, but the the biggest difference between Bernie and Trump and President Trump is that Bernie appealed they, they 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 were they were looking at the same issues a lot of the time but Bernie was on a lot of times appealing to trying to appeal to our better angels whereas Trump was appealing to our worst playing 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 to our basest fears 
Um, and obviously the basis fear is one, but, but I think that it was very easy to ignore. It, it, it was surprisingly easy to ignore that, ignore those lessons. And, um, and so it, the, the data question is interesting. And I, and I had this thought cause we were, we, we talk a lot about 538. You're a very data oriented guy quantitatively. I'm becoming much more data oriented and I haven't seen this so much lately, um, but in like the day, first 24, 36 hours after the election, man, data journalism was getting beat up seriously mm-hmm. over this. Um, and unfairly, I think, especially 538 was getting beat up unfairly. And I was critical of a lot of the, some of their, I should say, I was thinking about this tonight. I was very critical of, a lot of, of some of their writing. I was very critical of a lot of their presentation of it, which all turned out to be right. So I'm the idiot. But I was never, I never had a flaw with them methodologically, mainly because I know, I trust that they know the math way better than I know the math. But it got me thinking about data in, in elections and just kind of like expanding it out and like how we use data in research, how we use data in our life. I mean, I walk around with a Fitbit and so I'm all, and always collecting data on, on that kind of thing. I just think it's a potentially interesting topic, like how we use it, the shortcomings it can have. Um, and so as a quantitative guy, maybe you can start off with why didn't Nate Silver blow it? Like any, everybody probably thinks he did. Well, I think people, the, 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 the most parsimonious explanation I can give is that people don't understand probability. Mm-hmm. They think, if a guy says Hillary Clinton's got a 71% chance to win the presidency, then she's going to win the presidency because that's 71 out of a hundred. Well, it's, it also means the other person has a a 29 or 30% shot of winning the presidency. And that's not an insignificant amount. I mean, you know, um, flip a coin 10 times. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. how often is it going to come up heads or tails? I mean, if it comes up heads more than, you know, more than four times, I mean, you, that, you're, you're starting to see where probability comes into play. And mm-hmm. so I think people, this is, this is where people weren't looking for, for probability. They were looking for prognostication. Right. And so they would go to, you know, they would go to 538 and they'd expect it to be like all of the other polls, which said, okay, Hillary Clinton's leading. Right. Or, you know, and that means that, Hillary Clinton's going to win because Hillary Clinton's leading in the polls or they're going to go to their local cable channel or their newspaper. And there's pundits there who are talking about the data that's being produced. And they're going to say, Oh, um, Hillary Clinton's going to win because she's leading in all of these polls. So that's really, I guess the, the basis explanation as to why 538 and Nate Silver didn't blow it. They did what they were supposed to do. And, and, you know, it was funny because Silver went out of his way on most of the podcasts that they recorded in, in August and September and October at the beginning of November and explained why almost, almost apologizing for why their model, which is an aggregation of all of these polls with the corrections made for, for house effects, mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, for, for how the sampling was working, um, you know, was, was, was apologizing or explaining why their model was giving Trump a better percentage chance of proportional chance of victory than other places. And, you know, as it turned out, they were closer than, than all, almost everybody. I mean, there were a couple of outlier polls that were pro- projecting a Trump victory. We saw, you know, the, the Los Angeles times USC poll. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a couple of other polls that had Trump ahead. Um, but those were laughed off because there was this consensus uh, in, in the, 
you know, in, in the, the polls that were being generated from a variety of places that Clinton was just far ahead. And, you know, I guess the last thing I'll say in terms of why those didn't mesh with what ended up happening and, and even why 538, as far as it went, didn't go far enough, all that polls measure is what people say they're going to do. And mm-hmm. so there's two, there's two variables, two independent variables there that you have to keep in mind. Whether those people are going to vote after right. having indicated that they're likely to, mm-hmm. and B, um, whether you have selected the right proportion of people uh, the, as, as matches or does not match the actual people that go to the polls. And mm-hmm. so with those things in competition with each other, what ended up happening was, as we mentioned earlier on the podcast, a lot of the people that seemed to be certain to go vote for Hillary Clinton didn't show up, right. which meant that that portion of the poll was oversampled. Mm-hmm. And the people that ended up going and voting for Donald Trump, it wasn't that they were necessarily underrepresented in the poll because Trump was still polling at about 43%. Right. But now, instead of 43%, that looks more like 47%. Right. And that's, you know, that's polling error. That's, you know, anybody that's done anything statistically, there's always a margin for error built in, which is right. like plus or minus three percentage points. That's what happened here. And I think that the reason why a lot of people pointed their fingers at 538 that on the face they'll say, well, it's because they were sh- they should have been able to tell us if Trump was going to win. In reality, they were mad because, as, as I mentioned on the podcast a couple weeks ago, they were being told something they didn't want to hear. Mm-hmm. And then when it came true, they got mad at that person for having not been more demonstrative or more definitive and saying Trump is going to win. Right. Which which is kind of ass backwards. If right. Right. Um, and. and- yeah, I, 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 I've been thinking about that. Like, like you know, the the 29% chance he's going to win is still a 29% chance he's going to win. And they pretty much, the polls pretty much called it. Like, Hillary is going to win the national popular vote by 2%. There was about 3 4% in the polls, in the last polls before the election. So that's very much within a normal polling error, normal margin of error, which is usually like plus or minus, what, 3 to 5? Usually probably about 3 points is a usually standard plus or minus so very much within 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 the stand within the standard um it it just just strikes me as you know in in thinking about kind of pulling backward and looking at data from a large standpoint you know i it is a it is funny how much and this might be self-selective from what i'm reading but it does seem like a lot of the uh, post-election analysis is now very much interested in a qualitative research look at uh, at Trump voters. Um, where, instead of looking at the polls and what they tell us, you know, quantitatively, they're trying to look at, you know, what are they, what were Trump voters telling, what are what are they saying, what were they saying, you know, kind of their lived experience, you know, very qualitative research look on it, and and, and it does strike me again, and this is hindsight, but how poll-driven a lot of, at least my media consumption was, heading into the election. And I think a lot of people, it's a very, it, it became very poll-driven. And, you know, without, you know, A, a huge basis in statistical knowledge, but also B, while also potentially ignoring any of the other reporting. And other, like, you know, only looking at the quantitative data and not looking at the qualitative data and trying to get a, a, a full picture of it. Um, I don't know. Um I'm going to say say something slightly sacrilegious here. Do it. Mm, I think sacrilegious. 
<laughs> I think part of the problem, particularly with the media, the news media, the political media response to this, mm-hmm. is that the uh, if if news media is a if it's a if it's a religion, which it kind of is to some degree, sure. like the practice sure. of it is kind of religious in nature. There's there's a priestliness about a lot of journalists and the way that they go about things. Don't don't get me started on the print newspaper as a totem because I have a uh, lot to say about that. But but if 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 it's a church, that church was built on telling stories of individual people mm-hmm. and then trying to extrapolate that out to a larger human existence right. or at the very least highlighting elements of the human existence that we feel as journalists need to be told because they're great stories. Well, the there's a, this kind of extrapolates to the larger issue of like newsworthiness and you know the man bites dog mentality of of newsworthiness where you're you're not looking for the mundane. You're not telling the story of the everyday person. You're right. telling the story of the unusual. You're telling the story of the, 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 the deviant. Yeah. The, no, not, or maybe not even the deviant. Well, but that's, the, that's the news value yeah. for the unusual. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, but, but it's just like, you're, you're telling the, the oddball story. You're telling, you're telling the, the unicorn story. As the opposed outlier. To telling yeah. The story of the mule that's, right. that's in the field. And the problem is, that the electorate is filled with far more mules than unicorns. Mm-hmm. And so what you end up with is even with these qualitative, you know, kind of I call them penance pieces, because yes. not pence, not pence pieces, but penance pieces. Right. Where you've got these journalists like, you know, flinging themselves into the heartland or, or or talking about how we need to fling ourselves into the heartland to understand how these people live. Right. And 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 what, you know, how we got how we went wrong. And it's like, look, the <laughs> You, you're you're not going to ever be able to effectively tell a close election story based upon the sorts of stories that end up generally going into political coverage because the the political coverage has to kind of be stereotypical on one hand and it has to be unicornish on the other hand like it has it has to be able to to be um, you know a kind of a, a, a signatory sort of of element of of journalism. Because otherwise, it's going to be looked at as too mundane to, to pass muster for the front page, and and that's that's I think a problem with the way that the polls are getting looked at too. Because polls, by their nature, are supposed to capture what's going on, not what's interesting. Right. And and so that's I, that's an interesting problem for 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 political journalism to overcome. Because I, I don't. On the one hand, you want to find out what's going on. On the other hand. You know what normally goes. It's, you know what what gets published in in the New York Times has to have a certain news like traditional right for the New York Times newsishness to it. Right. I mean, and, the the point of a news value is you're not going to read a story about guy. You know, are you going to read a story about guy goes up, goes to work at, at six o'clock in the morning, comes back at three, sore from working every day, not making as much money as he wants to. And and that same guy or girl doesn't particularly care about what's going on with people who don't live in his community or don't live in his state or don't share his religious or cultural values. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the, the worldliness that, that gets promoted as normal in most of the leading news magazines and news or newspapers and, and publications that, that most people in urban centers read it doesn't it, it's it's it is like a different world to mm-hmm. a large degree and that's hard to capture in those same publications because right. 
the people that are reading them are used to reading a certain type of news. Right. And I don't know. I think it's an interesting thing. I think it actually hits sports in a lot of ways, too. How so? Well, because I think about it a lot in the, the conversation between like the, the – so I was thinking about it with the college basketball season just got started, mm-hmm. right? And college basketball gets – um, gets murdered on a regular basis by the national sports media. Right. Uh, you know, there's a small cadre of, of college basketball writers that that cover the game, but the vast majority of people that cover basketball cover the NBA. Mm-hmm. They look down their noses at college basketball. They complain about all different things in college basketball, whether it's you know the quality of play is too low, or the games are are you know not officiated well enough, or they're overcoached, or you know all these things, and then they marvel at all these these you know these troglodytes on Twitter that complain to them about how they hate the NBA because the NBA is you know it's 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 just a bunch of of you know like one star per team right uh, it's a bunch of guys that don't care about the game and they're like how could you say that the NBA has you know the best basketball players in the world and it's the highest level of of talent and that's true. I mean, and I, you know, I watch both the NBA and college basketball, and there's no question that the quality of play in the NBA is much greater. But what they're missing is that the what what matters to the average college basketball fan isn't necessarily that the play at the college basketball level isn't at this high level that is the NBA. It's right. that they have an emotional connection with college basketball. They have an emotional connection with the teams, with the schools, with with the coaches, with some of the players at that level, and. They're not thinking about, oh, I could be watching something 40% better or, right. oh, I should be complaining that, you know, the, that these rules aren't what they are in the NBA. You know, what they're interested in is what they already like. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's a hard bridge for people who have gone past that or who don't have that same sort of, of, of you know, understanding of right. things to make if you're a writer or if you're a journalist. Right. And you add to that the nostalgia view of how college basketball was better when these guys stayed four years or like, you know, in the – 80s and 90s and you know you have the big east glory days which you hear about a lot around here being close to syracuse and that that's a good segue into our college basketball preview section yes um for one thing i just like to point out for the record st bonaventure still got hosed last year for the ncaa tournament i'm not prepared to give that up yet um i, but, I and I, i'm on record as agreeing with yep. you um i uh so um you actually posted on facebook today i know this wasn't yours but you actually posted the first mock, mock bracket of the year which i think is wonderful because the season literally just started so it's but but it, it was funny because you can talk about it as well but i i I find that an interesting potential way to view and go through and cover a season where you, you know, you're always thinking about th- this selection process because that is the end goal of co- the college basketball season is selection Sunday. Like the tournament is its own little entity, but in in a sense, the season lens up goes up to selection Sunday and making the bracket and everything else kind of, you know, is, is a different animal. And I, and it's funny because I, I see two sides of this. One potentially negative side is I do see the um, the problem where you know somebody is thought of as good because you rank them early in the season and they can't fall out of the rankings. I remember this when I was a top twenty five voter, where it's very hard for a team to jump into the top twenty five, especially like after the first couple weeks when it's a little chaotic. Whereas mm-hmm. like a preseason ranking will always hold a lot of weight. But I just I I, I find the idea. You know, and I and the the analogy I thought of was when you mentioned months ago on this podcast that you think sports writers should be experts in their in their sport, 
And I and and I think it was a, it's it's just a really cool way of thinking about the basketball season, where like you always think about it in ter- you're always looking at it in terms of this bracket. So of course you start now, and of course it's meaningless now. It doesn't mean you know you you recognize that it's just almost like a, an intellectual exercise at this point. But I don't know. I just found it an, an, a neat alternative way to start thinking about covering and viewing college basketball through that lens um, yeah. this early. Well, and, and that's one of my buddies uh, at, the, at the site that I, I, mean, I, I, I kind of co-contribute to it, but that's a lie because they basically do 99% of the stuff. I think if I'm lucky to get on like two or three podcasts a year, I'm too busy with everything else. But I, I've worked with those guys. I've done brackets with them for years, and mm-hmm. and they, they're really into it. Like they follow – far more teams than I was ever, ever able to get into. Like they, they do a rundown of literally every single game being played in college basketball every day of wow. the season from beginning to end that they're nuts in a good way. That's impressive. And, and, um, and you know, my, my friend, David Griggs, who, if you ever watch the podcast, uh, he's just a puppet, uh, like literally <laughs> like it's a, it's a, on Skype. It's just a, it's just a hand puppet. Okay. But, uh, he he goes through and he does the bracket, uh, like that every week. And I think it's a great way of thinking about things because, you know, you, you really, I feel like there, there's a much larger conversation we could have at some point about how I don't really like the NCAA selection committee. I feel like it's, oh, uh, neither do I, but for probably very different reasons. No, it's probably for the same reason. Although, although St. Bonaventure, no offense, is not normally in the tournament selection mix enough. Um, I I don't like, you don't like them because they, they snubbed your boys. I don't like them because I think they're incredibly arbitrary with the criteria that that they provide, which was my argument, my, my big argument against the Bonaventure thing last year, but sorry. But, and, and what I get angry with is not just that they're arbitrary about it in one year, they're arbitrary about it year after year. Like, Mm -hmm. well, you know. One year, this is important. Like strength of schedule is important. The next year, it's oh, did you play road and neutral games, and did you have a good record? And then the next year, it's you know, you know, what was your opponent's strength of schedule? Like it's right. just, it's like they and and it feels very arbitrary. It feels like they're they use whatever criteria uh, fits them, and it's very hard to schedule for. It's very hard to prepare for if you're a coach, and that really creates a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And I, it's. It's funny to me because we're kind of seeing the same thing happen with the college football playoff. If you take the first couple of of rankings that they put out there, they're very, very strange uh, in that they, they seem to be taking uh, inconsistent, uh, you know, approaches to things as far as that's concerned. But anyway, that said, I do think it's it's good to start from the beginning and take into account, OK, who's winning, who's losing, who are they beating and what do those wins really mean? And that gives you a much more holistic view I think much more holistic than the committee itself will provide sometimes as right. far as, you know, what is exactly going on. I mean, I honestly, I think, I think, it, and even though they would never do it, I think the biggest, if you really wanted an independent, you know, like a, a solid, well done criteria driven uh, selection draw every year, you would not have ADs. And conference commissioners on the committee, you would have a selected group of people. It doesn't even have to be journalists. It could just be experts on college basketball who do not have to be journalists, by the way, um, making selections based upon an independent and unbiased view of the criteria that are out there. But that's not really what they're interested in. And I've argued that for years. Like I've always felt that the committee thing is somewhat of a subterfuge to to keep a certain degree of status quo in the system. I'll agree with that. So how's uh so I'll get we'll do a uh 
a quick uh, preview of our teams. Uh, Bonaventure, St. Bonaventure picked to finish fifth out of 10 in the A10. I think that's about fair. You know, fifth in the A10 with a, with, with a potential run. And, um, and you're going to want to keep an eye on Jalen Adams, uh, guard from last year's team. He's a junior now, first team, all A10. Great, great point guard. So uh, tell me, how's Indiana going to be? I tell you, they, they look pretty good. Uh, they, they went out to Hawaii in one of the opening games of the year, and they beat Kansas on a neutral floor it's in overtime. Win. Always it a really, it's always I a mean, good it's, win, yeah. It's a, it's a win that they needed. I mean, they've, they've struggled in the past several years with not scheduling properly, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, and, and they've been lacking when it comes to the, the end of the, the season accounting of their schedule. And they don't. They're not going to have that problem now unless they lose a bunch of weird things. Uh, you know that that a bunch of weird games that you wouldn't expect them to get. But anyway, um, they look really good. James Blackman Jr., uh, who was out for the second half of last season with a knee injury, looked stellar. Uh, ended up, I think, with like 27 points in the game. Thomas Bryant, the big man down low, looked great. A mm-hmm. uh, couple of new freshman contributors. Uh, I'm actually pretty excited about this team, and I think that. It's going to be interesting. They play North Carolina on the 30th of November here okay. at Assembly Hall. Oh, nice. I don't have I don't have tickets right now, but it'd be great if someone um, would you know pop up with tickets for me. So if you're looking for like holiday ideas, let's that make, would be let, there. Let, you go. Let's make this happen. Let's get let, let, let's get Galen to the game and like make make America great again. <laughs> let's get Galen to the game. Um, all right, we do have one listener topic, and I swear this wasn't sandbagged by me. Um, but from Facebook, my friend Mike Udicek suggested as a topic the Buffalo Bills, um, to which I like your eye roll emoji because that's my reaction <laughs> when I think about the Buffalo Bills. Right after the podcast last week, I did I was able to see uh, Richard Sherman murder Dan Carpenter um, and watch the end of that game, which I'm really mad. I was really mad at the Bills for many. Th- I'm always mad at the Bills, but I was mad at them last week for playing a close Monday night game the night before Election Day. Because I already knew I was going to be up way late and not sleep much either way on Tuesday. And then they had to go and do that to me on Monday night. But anyway, so the Bills right now, they're 4-5. and five. They had the bye this week. They're 4-5 and five after the Monday night loss. And I'm calling up on my phone. I have saved the uh, playoff chances by record that 538 ran earlier in the year. And teams with a 4-5 and five record make the playoffs 14% of the time. Um, which is one of those numbers that's shot that I, I think this is where I love this grid because that's one of those records where like media and Buffalo are like trying to track what's like who's winning and losing each week and how that helps the Bills playoff chances. And it's always good to have this realistic grid that like at four and five, you're basically toast. I mean, yeah. And, you know, it's frustrating because for me as, as a Bills fan, because there's just enough good. Like I think Tyrod Taylor is just good enough to like be promising but I don't. I, I. I'm seeing. I'm smelling like another seven and nine, middle of the pack finish where they get like the the fourteenth round fourteenth draft pick, and they're just good enough, and we're just injured enough that like they keep Rex Ryan and Doug Whaley, and they like just try to tre- tread water till they get to ten and and it's just it's not feeling like a lot of forward momentum for the team right now. So you know the the sad thing. The real sad thing with the the Bills is that they should probably at this point be seven and two, maybe even eight and one. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, because they they should have beaten the Ravens. There's no reason they should have lost to the Jets. No, that there's was a no terrible re- loss. There's no reason they should have lost to the Dolphins. Mm-hmm. 
and the Seahawks game could have gone either way. Right. Uh, no, I mean, but but they and and every game that they've won, they've won handily. I mean, they yeah. beat the Cardinals by fifteen, they beat the Patriots by sixteen, they beat the Rams by eleven, they beat the Forty ers by a thousand. Right. Uh, and they have a they have a positive point differential in the league, which frankly is is somewhat of a rarity uh, in the AFC. But they're screwed at yeah. this point. I mean, yeah. I hate to say it. Like, no, I mean, they're, the, the, they're toast. The problem right now is that there are three really good teams in the AFC West. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, three teams with seven wins. I mean, right. and it's not just them that's screwed. I mean, the, the Steelers. The right conference now, is screwed because right yeah. now the, the wild card, the, the, the AFC West is getting three playoff teams. They're going to get then, the two wild cards right now. And the problem, the, but the other problem with the Bills is that even if that wasn't the case, the only teams that have a worse conference record mm-hmm. than the Bills are the Browns. Right and the Jaguars. Right. If the Bills, like that's, if, that's uh, really, really, really if, bad. If the Bills could get a, an immediate transfer to the NFC West, life would be fantastic right now because they basically they're they're two and one against that division and yeah. one and four against everyone else. So yeah. I don't know. So you know, another play the playoff drought will continue uh, this and year. What do you do, and, and what do you do at that point? I mean, do you, do you uh, here, that's the thing because like. So, so th- that's one of the things. Like, do you get rid of Rex because he's not like the defense is nothing special. The offense is okay. Like, there's just enough bright side to the offense. I don't know if Taylor's long term, but he's also got st- he's also got nobody at wide receiver. Like all the good, uh, like all their normal wide receivers are out hurt. Watkins has been out all year, so you know dealing de- dealing with uh, somewhat limited weapons. The defense has been nothing special, but you know there's. It, 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 it's that chicken and egg. I was reading Poznanski, uh, Joe Poznanski read about, wrote about the Browns today. And like, at some point there, there's, you know, do you do, do you keep for continuity and, and do you, you know, is blowing it all up going to help or is it going to set them back? And, you know, I've always, I don't like continuity for continuity's sake because I don't want continuity at seven and nine, which is, I think what Rex gets you, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't. Do you blow it up? I don't think. I don't think they're bad enough that you just blow it up because that's you got to fall way back from where you are, from where you're, from where you're going forward. But it is. It's that that toughest leap in football and probably all sports. Really, I would guess is that that from that like right around five hundred to playoff contender. I mean, that's why the seventy sixers did what they did. That's why tanking becomes a thing because I think analytics show you're better to profoundly suck for a year or two than to be just good just missing and the bills have been really good at just missing for a lot of years you know i will say this i think i do think that that mentality is a little more it's a little more baseball and nba than it is nfl okay because we we do see teams even mediocre teams able to make leaps if they make the right changes in personnel. That's true. And, 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 and football, the margin of error is so small. Like right. the, the bills don't blow that dolphins game. It's they're they're five and four and marginally better off, you know, you know, one, you know, one, two little close games in the, you know, and football is such a small margin for error that I think, yeah, it's different than, you know, baseball obviously is such a, a long saw and, and basketball, and basketball is so star-driven that you really do, you know, one player can be transformative, unlike football. Um, but, I don't know, it's looking like a long winner. What about the Colts? Do I have any hope in following the Colts on your behalf, or are they screwed, too? They're screwed. Damn I it. mean, 
that team that that team is they're four and five on the season right now. They're two and four in the conference. Like they they are okay. almost as bad as the Bills, and and they're just I mean they're just a middling team. I mean the only hope is that right now they're two games behind the Texans and the Texans the and, and, that, and that and that con- and that division's nothing special. So but but they've already lost to the Texans once. So they have to beat them uh, when on the return, or else they they lose that tiebreaker. Uh, and and frankly, you know, I mean, the the rest of their schedule is a little bit on the tough side. I mean, it's not it's not the worst in the world, but they still have to play the Steelers on Thanksgiving. They have to travel to the Vikings. They have to travel to the Raiders. They still have to play the Titans again. Uh, you know, I mean, it's there, and the Titans look better now than they did before. Yeah, they do. Uh, uh, and I just you, you don't get the feeling from the Colts that they're going anywhere this season. Like that's a team that's a team that probably does need to blow it up to some degree because right. they have been they have been unable to surround Andrew Luck with a team that's capable of of getting you know to the next level. And in fact, they I would say regressed considerably this year over where they were even last year. I, I, I think I think if we combine the Bills and the Colts, we could have an interesting super team. Not super it might team, be any. I mean, I mean, I mean, the Bills' offensive line is, is is pretty solid. Give Luck a guy like Watkins to throw to. Um, I'm down for it. I'm I mean, a, the, Buff- the Buffalo Colts. Let's make it happen. Let's do it. It's done. So, all right. Well, as always, we've helped a lot of people. Um, be sure if you're looking for helpfulness, our ne- Thanksgiving preview next week. I think I think we're planning on uh, on really uh, shaking this holiday up and really getting you prepared to be thankful. It's time to make Thanksgiving great again. <laughs> Yes, so show notes for this can be found, as always, sportsmediaguy.com. Click on the flip side tab. This is Season 3, Episode 8. Um, any you final didn't, thoughts? You, you didn't cry. I didn't cry. We got that going for us. Yeah. <laughs> I'll cry, I'll be, watch, you'll make me cry during Thanksgiving by, like, insulting mashed potatoes or something like that, and I'll just go to pieces. <laughs> Two weeks of repressed emotions coming out over Thanksgiving food. So, so much so much to look forward to. All right. <laughs> For uh, for Brian, I'm Galen. Thanks for catching us here. We will catch you on the flip side. So long, everybody. See ya.